Welcome to episode 35. This is part two of The Evolution of Culture, which is chapter 15 of The Beginning of Infinity. Today I'll be going through selfish memes and static societies. And we'll be distinguishing between static societies and dynamic societies. But I'll leave dynamic societies until next episode. A crucial question we'll be considering in this chapter is why it is that human creativity can express itself in such different ways in different societies, in a sort of reliable way. So in certain kinds of societies, which we call dynamic societies, this creativity is used to cause progress and change. But in a static society, something else is going on. We've got the same kind of creativity, but it's being used not for progress, it's being used to maintain the status quo. I think David Deutsch gives a unique creative answer himself. And this is a question that has civilizational consequences. After all, we want to tend towards being a dynamic society, a society that continues to solve problems at a rapid rate. In fact, we need to be able to continue to solve problems at a rate more rapid than the rate at which we encounter them because eventually the civilizational destroying problem might arise. And if we aren't able to create knowledge in time, if we are too slow to react, then that'll be the end of us. Now, a static society isn't making progress hardly at all. It's not really creating knowledge. There are very few perfectly dynamic societies and perfectly static societies. Historically, we might be able to look at examples of near-perfect static societies, although nothing comes quite perfect. Nothing is quite perfectly static. But the lesson is that societies these days contend in one direction or the other. And we always want to tend in the direction of dynamism, of fast progress, of being able to change in a direction that allows us to improve. Now, before we get to the main discussion about static societies and the causes of static societies, we need to go back to the idea of memes. And David's up to the point where he talks about the selfish meme, obviously a play on the selfish gene from Richard Dawkins. So I'll begin reading. And for anyone following along, I happen to be up to page 377. The selfish meme. If a gene is in a genome at all, then when suitable circumstances arise, it will definitely be expressed as an enzyme, as I described in chapter 6, and will then cause its characteristic effects. Nor can it be left behind if the rest of its genome is successfully replicated, but merely being present in a mind does not automatically get a meme expressed as behaviour. The meme has to compete for that privilege with other ideas, memes and non-memes, about all sorts of subjects in the same mind, and merely being expressed as behaviour does not automatically get the same meme copied into a recipient, along with other memes. It has to compete for the recipient's attention and acceptance with all sorts of behaviours by other people and with the recipient's own ideas. All that is in addition to the analogue of the type of selection that genes face, each meme competing with rival versions of itself across the population, perhaps by containing the knowledge for some useful function. Memes are subject to all sorts of random and intentional variation in addition to that selection, and so they evolve. So to this extent, the same logic holds as for genes. Memes are selfish. They do not necessarily evolve to benefit their holders or their society, or again, even themselves, except in the sense of replicating better than other memes. Though now, most other memes are their rivals, not just variants of themselves. The successful meme variant is the one that changes the behaviour of its holders in such a way as to make itself best at displacing other memes from the population. This variant may well benefit its holders or their culture or the species as a whole, but if it harms them or destroys them, it will spread anyway. Memes that harm society are a familiar phenomenon. You need only consider the harm done by adherents of political views or religions that you especially abhor. Societies have been destroyed because some of the memes that were best at spreading through the population were bad for a society. I shall discuss one example in chapter 17. And countless individuals have been harmed or killed by adopting memes that were bad for them such as irrational political ideologies or dangerous fads. 
Fortunately, in the case of memes, that is not the whole story. To understand the rest of the story, we have to consider the basic strategies by which memes cause themselves to be faithfully replicated. Okay, pausing there, just my brief reflection on this. This is reminiscent in some sense to what in biology is called the naturalistic fallacy, which I've talked about before. Uh, the naturalistic fallacy is the idea that if something is natural, then therefore it's good. Uh, think of new age types or people who believe in only living a paleo diet. Think of people who regard chemicals as altogether bad and only things which uh, appear biologically natural are good. But of course, all that style of thinking is refuted by... Mm, funnel web spider venom or snake venom. It's a thing that occurs naturally, but it's certainly not good for you. And you want the artificial anti-venom if it can be got, if you happen to get bitten by one of these things. Lots of natural things like rape or eating your children happen to exist out there in nature among lower animal forms. But of course, just because it's natural doesn't make it good. So when it comes to humans, what is natural for us is typically what is unnatural for everything else. And often what is good, what is unnatural is what is quite good. Creating knowledge is natural for us. Creating technology is natural for us. Sometimes the technologies have side effects which themselves cause certain problems. That's all a natural part of being human. So in a way, the distinction between the natural and the artificial for us is nonsensical. Everything we do is a natural outworking of our creative capacity, which we happen to have. But if you're going to say that everything we do is unnatural and therefore bad in some way, then you're caught in this bind of assuming that we should be replicating or repeating or trying to emulate what's going on out there in nature. But you really don't want to emulate the behavior of, I don't know, a lion. You know, lions typically eat the children of their competitors. So it's, it's not an ideal society to emulate. Not everything that is natural is good. We already know this. This is straightforward. Related to this kind of naturalistic fallacy, which I think many rational, clear-thinking people typically reject, this idea of natural as good, is the idea that anything that, in, that has evolved in biology is therefore useful or beneficial or even works to some extent. This idea that biological structures exist only if they work, well, sometimes, but not always. The only thing that's being replicated, the only thing that works is the gene, the structure that actually arises, including the whole organism itself, isn't necessarily benefited by the evolutionary process that has led to it. Uh, let, let sharpen this, to sharpen this up a bit, if you have appendicitis, someone telling you that the, the existence of the gene that causes your eventual appendicitis, that could be a genetic thing, it's small comfort to think that, well, some, in some way that was natural, in some way it has worked, that's why it's there in your body. Well, it's not working for you. It's also not working for you if you happen to have genes, as most human beings do, for the eventual decay of the discs between the vertebrae and their spine. People get bad backs as they get older. In fact, something as simple as the genes that eventually lead to death, the genes that eventually lead to disease of any kinds. I don't know too much about sharks, but I have read that sharks apparently don't suffer from cancer. So they have good genes that we lack. Our genes apparently allow for the possibility of cancer. If we had different genes, then perhaps we wouldn't. Perhaps we wouldn't have disease of any kind if our genes were slightly different. Perhaps we would live forever if our genes were of a certain kind. That solution must be out there in abstract biological space. People living longer, people living for instead of 80 years, 160 years, perhaps 1,000 years. Those genes must be out there somewhere. So the genes that we do have aren't necessarily of great benefit to us necessarily. They can be of some benefit. They can kind of work. They aren't perfect. And there would be better variants out there. And all of these problems that are there within our genes, all these non-ideal structures and features of our lives that we happen to inherit from our genes, we will change gradually with our ideas as we come up with better ways of genetically engineering ourselves, of curing disease, of trying to fix cancer and so on and so forth, of trying to combat age. Well, that will be memes that will be causing the big changes in us, not the genes. So genes don't exist because they're necessarily beneficial to the organisms which they give rise to. Same too for memes. Just because a meme happens to have survived, 
over and again does not necessarily mean that it's good for that organism, or as David says, the society in which it finds itself being replicated. Genes do not have our best interests at heart. Memes do not necessarily have our best interests at heart. So just because a meme is popular does not mean that it's good. In fact, sometimes the opposite. Many memes are very, very harmful. They are, after all, as David has said, selfish. They're all about themselves. To the extent they do survive, some do so at our expense. Not all of them, but this is where rational analysis comes in. The meme that says killing yourself and other innocent people in order to secure a place in eternal paradise is one that does attract people and new adherents every single year, hopefully less and less every single year as we learn more and as um, rational dynamic societies spread throughout the world. Nevertheless, this idea of doing harm to yourself and harm to other people in order to appease a nasty god in the eternal paradise um, is something that has persisted over time. It's a meme that gets itself replicated and it resists correction, often because it's conjoined with other memes that tell you that thinking that that particular meme is false is a reason for you not getting into paradise or a reason that you are deficient in some way. So this is an anti-rational kind of meme. It's a meme that causes itself not to be criticised. It resists criticism. It resists error correction. But, and so therefore, it gets replicated in its existing form. Well, not therefore. It exists in its existing form and it is attractive for some reason to the society or to the, to the adherence of the meme. Okay, back to the book. And David has just finished the section there that I read by saying, and I'll repeat it, to understand the rest of the story, we have to consider the basic strategies by which memes cause themselves to be faithfully replicated. And the next section is subtitled Static Societies. And he writes, As I have explained, a human brain, quite unlike a genome, is itself an arena of intense variation, selection, and competition. Most ideas within a brain are created by it for the very purpose of trying them out in imagination, criticising them and varying them until they meet the person's preferences. In other words, mean replication itself involves evolution within individual brains. In some cases, there can be thousands of cycles of variation and selection before any of the variants is ever enacted. Then, even after a meme has been copied into a new holder, it has not yet completed its life cycle. It still has to survive a further selection process, namely the holder's choice of whether to enact it or not. Pause there, just um, my reflection again. Remember uh, in the last episode, if you heard that, there were four kinds of ideas, not all of which are memes. In fact, the first three kinds are not memes. So the four kinds are like this. Um, the first is an idea you simply have and it causes no behaviour in you whatsoever. I might be sitting here and thinking, I wouldn't mind getting a cup of tea. But if I don't act on it, well, it hasn't caused any behaviour, and I've just thought about it, and maybe I've criticised it, and I've thought to myself, no, we've already had two cups of tea a day, I don't want another one. Okay, that's an idea of the first type. The idea of the second type is, I wouldn't mind having a cup of tea, and actually get up, go over to the kettle and the teapot, and go through the process of making the tea and then drinking the tea. But if there's no one else here in my house and no one ever sees me having that cup of tea, there's no possibility that anyone could ever copy it. And so although it's an idea, it's an idea that's caused a behaviour in me, there's no possibility of it being replicated. So that's the second type. So an idea of the third type would be everything I just did then in the second type, have the idea of a cup of tea actually going through the process of making the cup of tea. And someone actually sees me having the cup of tea and drinking the cup of tea. But if they decide not to copy that, well, it's not a meme at all. Okay, it's just an idea that's caused behaviour that they happen to have observed. Now, in the fourth type, this is where we have the idea and it causes a behaviour in me and I go and have my cup of tea and I drink it here out of my University of Oxford cup and I put it onto a podcast like this and people who are watching see it and then for whatever reason, lots of people go out and buy University of Oxford cups and decide to start, I don't know, drinking cups of tea on video. That would be a meme. That is where we've got an idea that has caused behaviour that's being replicated. Now, that's a silly idea. Most other memes are far more useful and they tend to get replicated because they're solving some kind of problem or they're achieving other, some other kind of aim. Although there are memes out there that are just as silly or trivial as that and tend to get replicated. 
They might not have a long lifespan though. But whatever the case, this is how the broad category of things that we call ideas can be distinguished from memes, the ideas that tend to get replicated and that tend to persist over time, especially across many generations. Not always, maybe they'll only exist for some days or weeks or years. We know this definitely on the internet that there are certain memes that seem to arise and then uh, decline again very quickly. But broadly speaking, memes are things that do persist over many generations and the longest lived memes tend to cause cultural changes as well. Now we might consider, um, I have a couple of volumes up here of Feynman's lectures on physics. Well, they came from a certain history of memes, the history of memes that began with Galileo and Kepler and then Newton uh, who came up with Newtonian classical physics and then and those memes were passed on through many generations due to people delivering lectures, convening classes, writing books about them, eventually leading to Feynman himself delivering lectures, which were published in a book, uh, which included aspects of Newtonian physics. So that meme has persisted over time and has been refined even, and its rate of propagation has increased throughout the world. And, and in fact, some of the refinements to those original memes tend to improve them and cause them to be replicated in even better ways or to be or to persist even more robustly or to be promoted throughout the world even more than what they otherwise would have been. Uh, Feynman himself was very, very good at this. Let's take, for example, uh, something like specific heat capacity. Uh, specific heat capacity is a part of physics. It describes... Well, specific heat capacity is defined as the amount of energy required to raise the temperature of one unit mass of a substance, a unit mass is usually regarded in physics as a kilogram, by one Kelvin or one degree Celsius. So just to say that again, specific heat capacity, the amount of energy it takes to raise a substance of one kilogram by one degree Celsius. Now, there's all sorts of ways to try and understand and explain this. Feynman had his own way of explaining and understanding this, and he taught his students that it's analogous to wetness, that you could describe something that is able to absorb water as having a certain degree of wetness, and it can absorb a certain amount of water before it becomes entirely saturated. Some things can hold a lot of water, let's say a big bath towel, and some things cannot hold much water at all, let's say a tissue. What's this got to do with specific heat capacity? Well, people have an idea in their mind, they already have common sense understanding that the tissue cannot hold much water before it becomes saturated, but the bath towel can hold quite a bit of water before it becomes completely saturated. Now, if we extend this analogy to specific heat capacity, the idea here is that some substances like iron cannot hold much heat before their temperature increases. So if you take a, an iron pot, a stainless steel pot, and stick it on the stove, then after a few seconds, the temperature will rise very quickly. If, in order to raise one kilogram of iron by one degree Celsius, it takes very little energy. In comparison to something like water, if you fill that pot with water, what you will notice is it takes a lot of energy, a lot of time, in order to cause the temperature of that water to increase. And the reason is specific heat capacity. There is this quality of substances that determines how much energy is absorbed to cause the temperature to rise. And what's this got to do with memes? Well, Feynman's way of explaining this has been regarded by some people involved in physics education as being a particularly useful analogy. And so it helps the meme to spread because it makes it easier for some people to learn this concept, to understand this concept of specific heat capacity. So Feynman not only promoted the meme of specific heat capacity, the idea that got replicated over time, but found ways of causing it to be replicated with ever increasing fidelity or certainly to cause it to be spread more widely than it might otherwise would have been. After all, if you are trying to teach someone and not using analogies and not trying to explain things in terms they might already understand, then they may not very well understand it and they won't therefore have behaviours like being able to explain it to someone else later on, causing the meme to otherwise be replicated. So this is what I mean about there are memes themselves, like the meme of 
trying to analogize something or trying to use a metaphor in order to explain something that themselves can cause other memes, like specific heat capacity, to be replicated better. Okay, so let's go back to the book. And David writes, some of the criteria that a mind uses to make such choices are themselves memes. Some are ideas that it has created for itself by altering memes or otherwise, and which will never exist in any other mind. Such ideas are potentially highly variable between different people, yet they can decisively affect whether any given meme does or does not survive a given person. Since a person can enact and transmit a meme soon after receiving it, a meme generation can be much shorter than a human generation, and many cycles of variation and selection can take place inside the minds concerned even during one meme generation. Also, memes can be passed to people other than the holder's biological descendants. Those factors make meme evolution enormously faster than gene evolution, which partly explains how memes can contain so much knowledge. Hence, the frequently cited metaphor of the history of life on Earth, in which human civilization occupies only the final second of the day during which life has so far existed, is misleading. In reality, a substantial proportion of all evolution on our planet to date has occurred in human brains, and it has barely begun. The whole of biological evolution was but a preface to the main story of evolution, the evolution of memes. Now, that bears repeating. You know, you see this in, in biology textbooks, you see this in geology textbooks. If you regard the beginning of life on Earth as being January the 1st, you know, of a particular year, then by the time you get to December 31st of that same year, human beings only appear in the final second, if you were to spread out evolution that long, or geological time anyway, that long. So it appears as if um, we haven't been that profound. We're not very profound compared to um, all other life on Earth. But that's a, a strange measure of profundity, of the profundity of evolution in the universe. Because really, Although there has been a vast amount of evolution, biologically speaking, if we consider all forms of evolution, all forms of change that have ever happened, then the evolution of ideas that has happened over time far outstrips what goes on in biology and will continue to. The rate of change of ideas in human civilization is far, far greater and far faster than anything that's going on in the biological realm. Fast though that may be, it is completely outstripped. So again, as David says, in reality, a substantial proportion of all evolution on our planet to date has occurred in human brains, and it has barely begun. The whole of biological evolution was but a preface to the main story of evolution, the evolution of memes. Now, if anyone out there listen, ever listens to the podcaster Joe Rogan, uh, Joe speaks in terms like this now and again when he's in particular moods. Uh, he will talk about Precisely that, actually, how it seems as though his understanding of human beings is that we are giving birth to something that he's not sure of what it is, but it's something technological, it's something beyond biology, it's something post-governed by natural evolutionary laws or natural biological evolutionary laws. We're moving beyond that. And his um, common sense understanding of that that he's come to is quite right and in line with this idea that biological evolution is merely a preface to whatever is coming next, this evolution of ideas, which might allow us to fly free completely of our biology. At the moment, we're not there. At the moment, we are very much subject to, the bio to biology. But if one day we can have bodies that are more robust and not made out of this meat, <laughs> we're not meat... <laughs> We're not packets of meat, but our brains are able to be put into something far more resilient, something like silicon, then evolution will not have a bearing on us. Uh, we won't have brains that are determined by genes. We'll have brains instead that are run minds that are completely independent of our bodies and therefore will not be subject to the biological necessities that we have, like eating and drinking and so on and so forth, etc. <sighs> It's just too much to think about. Yeah. But we have to. I know. We do have to. And one of the things that's always been amusing to me is that we seem to have this 
insatiable desire to improve things. Yeah. And I've always wondered why. Like, but is that maybe because this is what human beings are here for? Yeah. It's what we do. Yeah. It's who we are. Right. Yeah. But is this a product of just a, uh, us being intelligent, trying to survive against nature and predators and weather and all the, all the different issues that we came up that we evolved growing up and dealing with. Right. And then now we just want things to be better. We just want things to be more convenient, faster, but yeah. more data. And what, whatever the case is, um, this process of meme replication is not controlled by the genes. Now, it, they're analogous in, in, in the sense that both of them evolve, both genes evolve over time and memes evolve over time. But the memes are not in the genes. And this is where evolutionary psychology gets things so seriously wrong at times. To think that all of our memes, our ideas are in some way, if not determined by, then certainly shaped by biological determinism. That there's genes that cause us to have certain thoughts. Now that might be true, but that would be the tiniest fraction of thoughts we ever have are ones in which there's some biological antecedent in which, in which you could trace some sort of idea to a gene. That would be a rare exception to the rule. The evolution of memes, also unlike genes, evolution of memes can be a highly intelligently designed process. Because, not always of course, but we are intelligent and so we can design certain ideas. If we have an idea for a certain kind of architecture, then that's most certainly intelligently designed. And that meme can spread throughout the world and cause certain styles of buildings to be built all over the world. And so that's a certain kind of meme that can spread, it can be replicated, and it's intelligently designed. Now, not, it's not always the case that memes are intelligently designed. Some are not. We would presume that memes that actively tend to destroy the lives of human beings haven't been intelligently designed. They have arisen for non-intelligent reasons and they persist over time and they're anti-rational in many, many ways. But br broadly speaking, many of the memes that we're interested in are these ones that um, people subject uh, to criticism, that they refine over time uh, and that, that propagate because someone wants them to propagate. But not all, not all meme evolution is blind in that sense. Some is, much is not, uh, and that's another key difference with gene evolution. Okay, so I'm going to skip a little here. David talks about how meme replication is less reliable than gene replication. Um, clearly because people have these creative minds and so they're constantly changing their ideas. And so that can cause memes to themselves be criticised destroyed and therefore not be replicated at all. And, and, and he mentions the term intentional variation with respect to memes, this, this intelligent designing that I was taught, speaking of. Um, I guess my term's a little bit more loaded than what David's is. Intentional variation, unlike random variation which goes on with the genes. So the intentional variation of a meme can itself cause it to be criticized or varied in such a way that it's not going to be replicated. Uh, it's not going to be passed on to the next generation or to, to another person. In fact, it might be criticised in such a way as it causes no further behaviour, even if it's been causing behaviour prior to that. Uh, people, want to, people want to improve their ideas, and so, therefore, some of the ideas that might have been causing behaviour for many, many generations might cease to cause any further behaviour. Uh, think of all the ridiculous medical practices that used to go on bloodletting, for example. You were sick and so the doctor would cut you and release some of your blood because it had the bad stuff in you. Well, that was certainly a meme that went around for a long time. Eventually, someone figured out that was ridiculous and so it ceased to be propagated. And so uh, this is the reason why we can have intentional variation of memes. We can have intent this intentional variation of memes and therefore um, the replication isn't reliable in the sense that you don't get this persistence necessarily. And it's not just for uh, reasons of fitness. We can deliberately stop the replication of memes. We can deliberately stop the replication of certain genes in ourselves as well. But out there in biology, of course, the genes will get replicated so long as they're fit. That's all that is needed. 
And David goes through a little bit about what dynamic societies are, which I'll talk about in the next episode because I really want to spend most of the time here talking about static societies. But basically, um, the concept here is that that only post-enlightenment societies are dynamic ones. And by dynamic, dynamic we mean stable under change over time. Uh, that's, that's one measure of it, making rapid progress. Rapid meaning progress that is noticeable on the timescale of individual human lives. And even today, we'd want something even more rapid than that. Within a year, we notice a certain amount of progress. Uh, new, new smartphones come out every single year. If a year went by where a new kind of car did not come out, then we'd think it a bit strange, or if a new piece of software didn't come out. The rate of progress is increasing, the rate of change is increasing. So we notice it year on year. This is the feature of a dynamic society. But then what, is the, what are the features of a static society? Well, let's turn to the book. And David writes, For a society to be static, all its memes must be unchanging or changing too slowly to be noticed. From the perspective of our rapidly changing society, such a state of affairs is hard to even imagine. For instance, consider an isolated primitive society that has, for whatever reason, remained almost unchanged for many generations. Why? Quite possibly, no one in the society wants it to change because they can conceive of no other way of life. Nevertheless, its members are not immune from pain, hunger, grief, fear, or other forms of physical and mental suffering. They try to think of ideas to alleviate some of that suffering. Some of those ideas are original, and occasionally, one of them would actually help. It need only be a small, tentative improvement, a way of hunting or growing food with slightly less effort or of making slightly better tools, a better way of recording debts or laws, a subtle change in the relationship between husband and wife or between parent and child, a slightly different attitude towards a society's rulers or gods. What will happen next? The person with the idea may well want to tell other people. Those who believe the idea will see that it could make life a little less nasty, brutish and short. They will tell their families and friends and they theirs. This idea will be competing in people's minds with other ideas about how to make life better, most of them presumably false. But suppose for the sake of argument that this particular true idea happens to be believed and spreads through the society. Then the society will have been changed. It may not have changed very much, but this was merely the change caused by a single person thinking of a single idea. So multiply all that by the number of thinking minds in the society and by the lifetime's worth of thought in each of them and let this continue for only a few generations. And the result is an exponentially increasing revolutionary force transforming every aspect of society. End quote. And pause there. Now, this mirrors, doesn't it, all the way back to chapter one of the beginning of infinity. People want to be less hungry, suffer less. They want to improve their lives. They want to be uh, less diseased. They want to grow more food, etc. They have problems. And what do they want to do? Well, they want to explain the world around them. So the quest for good explanations is what causes the society to change over time. What normally preoccupied them also involved yearning to know. They wished they knew how to prevent their food supply from sometimes failing, and how they could rest when they were tired without uh, risking starvation. Uh, be, be warmer, cooler, safer, in less pain. Uh, I bet those prehistoric cave artists would have loved to know how to draw better. Uh, uh. Because the quest for good explanations is a problem-solving enterprise. And where we find solutions to the problems that we have, then those solutions, if they're effective, can become memes that transmit themselves throughout society. And a special case of memes would be good explanations, hard-to-vary explanations. And so when you've got a hard-to-vary explanation, a good explanation of a particularly pressing problem that society has, then you have a beginning of infinity because then you have the capacity to incrementally, over time, improve your ideas and continue to solve that particular problem and related problems and more interesting problems as well. Back to the book, David writes. But in a static society, that beginning of infinity never happens, despite the fact 
that I have assumed that nothing other than that people try to improve their lives and that they cannot transmit their ideas perfectly and that information subject to variation and selection evolves, I have entirely failed to imagine a static society in this story. Pause there, my reflection. So that's interesting, isn't it? So he tried to imagine what a static society was by assuming that um, nothing more than that people wanted to improve their lives. And, um, and this has caused him to actually imagine a dynamic society, a society which causes problems to be solved over time. He's imagined a dynamic society. And so he, write, he goes on to write, David goes on to write, quote, for a society to be static, something else must be happening as well. One thing my story did not take into account is that static societies have customs and laws, taboos, that prevent their memes from changing. They enforce the enactment of existing memes, forbid the enactment of variants, and suppress criticism of the status quo. However, that alone could not suppress change. First, no enactment of a meme is completely identical to that of the previous generation. It is infeasible to specify every aspect of acceptable behaviour with perfect precision. Second, it is impossible to tell in advance which small deviations from traditional behaviour would initiate further changes. Third, once a variant idea has begun to spread to even one more person, which means that people are preferring it, preventing it from being transmitted further is extremely difficult. Therefore, no society could remain static solely by suppressing new ideas once they have been created. That is why the enforcement of the status quo is only ever a secondary method of preventing change, a mopping up operation. The primary method is always, and only can be, to disable the source of new ideas, namely human creativity. Let's pause there. Let's just read that again because I think this is um, so profound uh, and poorly understood out there, especially among people who are otherwise very interested in this question about why do some societies make progress slower than others? Is it that these fast, dynamic, wealthy societies are oppressing these other societies? And some people will come with the answer and say, no, it's not our fault. It's not the fault of the West, the Enlightenment societies, that some other societies aren't quite as wealthy. The problem is that in those societies, there's a form of tyranny or enforcement of the status quo. Well, that's part of the answer. But as David says there, and let's just reread it, he says, quote, the enforcement of the status quo is only ever a secondary method of preventing change, a mopping up operation. The primary method is always, and can only be, to disable the source of new ideas, namely human creativity. So static societies always have traditions of bringing up children in ways that disable their creativity and critical faculties. That ensures that most of the new ideas that would have been capable of changing the society are never thought of in the first place. Pausing there again. Okay, so it's worse than merely having a government, let's say, which is oppressive and tyrannical. Something else is going on at a much deeper level where the culture is such that children and others never have the idea in the first place to improve the society because there are other ideas in their mind, memes, causing them to be afraid, fearful, or simply unable to have new ideas. Because as soon as the genesis of the idea begins to make itself known to the thinker, these memes clamp down on that, prevent it from reaching fruition. They undermine disable human creativity, which is a remarkable thing. And so let's read uh, what I think is a discovery by David Deutsch with respect to meme theory. I haven't read it, any, read it anywhere else. I've read a few books on meme theory. But um, th this is the first time I've read uh, this solution to that problem of why people might not be able to be in a position necessarily to criticise the ideas that cause their society to be static 
and not make progress and solve problems in the way that other societies might be better at. David writes, how is this done? The details are variable, not relevant here, but the sort of thing that happens is that people are growing up in such a society, acquire a set of values for judging themselves and everyone else, which amounts to ridding themselves of distinctive attributes and seeking only conformity with the society's constitutive memes. They not only enact those memes, they see themselves as, as existing only in order to enact them. So not only do such societies enforce qualities such as obedience, piety and devotion to duty, their members' sense of their own selves is invested in the same standards. People know no others. So they feel pride and shame and form all their aspirations and opinions by the criterion of how thoroughly they subordinate themselves to the society's memes. Okay, so just pausing there and um, reflecting on that, here's the idea that there are certain kinds of memes which disable the ability of their holders of thinking anything new because their creativity instead is being used to ever more faithfully enact the status quo. Okay, and then David writes, quote, how do memes know how to achieve all such complex reproducible effects on the ideas and behaviour of human beings? They do not, of course, know. They are not sentient beings. They merely contain that knowledge implicitly. How did they come by that knowledge? It evolved. The memes exist at any instant in many different variant forms, and those are subject to selection in favour of faithful replication. For every long-lived meme of a static society, millions of variants will have fallen by the wayside because they lacked that tiny extra piece of information, that extra degree of ruthless efficiency in preventing rivals from being thought of or acted upon. That slight advantage in psychological leverage, or whatever it took to make it spread through the population better than its rivals, and, once it was prevalent, to get it copied and enacted with just that extra degree of fidelity. If ever a variant happened to be a little better at inducing behaviour with those self-replicating properties, it soon became prevalent. As soon as it did, there were again many variants of that variant, which were again subject to the same evolutionary pressure. Thus, successive versions of the meme accumulated knowledge that enabled them to ever more reliably inflict their characteristic style of damage on their human victims. Like genes, they may also confer benefits, though even then they are unlikely to do so optimally. Just as genes for the eye implicitly know the laws of optics, so the long-lived memes of a static society implicitly possess knowledge of the human condition and use it mercilessly to evade the defences and exploit the weaknesses of the human minds that they enslave. Okay, then skipping a substantial bit here where David talks about timescales. Um, and he says that static societies are not perfectly unchanging, but certainly um, primitive societies would have been static by our any measure that we would think of as being static. Over the course of anyone's lifetime, nothing would have been improved much. Your life would have been the same as your parents' lives, would have been the same as your grandparents' lives, and so on, back hundreds or thousands of generations. David also then mentions the fact that meme evolution um, tends to make memes static, but not necessarily whole societies static. Memes, he says, do not evolve to benefit the group, just like genes, as we were saying. The genes not only don't benefit necessarily to, um, to benefit the group, genes don't even exist to benefit the individuals in which they exist as well. Um, they might, but the gene is there to try and get itself replicated, and that can be via various means which might not include necessarily the survival of that particular individual, let alone that particular group. Okay, and then I'll pick it up where David says, quote, A static society forms when there is no escape from this effect. All significant behaviour, all relationships between people, and all thoughts are subordinated to causing faithful replication of the memes. In all areas controlled by the memes, 
No critical faculties are exercised. No innovation is tolerated and almost none is attempted. This destruction of human minds makes static societies almost unimaginable from our perspective. Countless human beings hoping throughout lifetimes and for generations for their suffering to be relieved not only fail to make progress in realising any such hope, they largely fail even to try to make any or even to think about trying. If they do see an opportunity, they reject it. The spirit of creativity with which we are born is systematically extinguished in them before it can ever create anything new. A static society involves, in a sense consists of, a relentless struggle to prevent knowledge from growing. But there is more to it than that, for there is no reason to expect that a rapidly spreading idea, if one did happen to arise in a static society, would be true or useful. That is another aspect missing from my story of the static society above that I... That, that David imagined. I assumed that the change would be for the better. It might not have been, especially as the lack of critical sophistication in a static society would leave people vulnerable to false and harmful ideas from which their taboos did not protect them. And then David mentions the example, which I won't read, about the Black Death and all the bad ideas that people used to use in order to try and cure disease like the Black Death. Yeah, killing Jews, killing witches... Uh, flagellating yourself, um, all these silly things that, of course, didn't work and, in fact, caused far more harm than good. And then he goes on to write, Thus, ironically, there is much truth in the typical static society fear that any change is much more likely to do harm than good. Okay, so pausing there, just my reflection. Yeah, any change is more likely to do harm than good. Um, when we talk about progress, we're not just talking about change for change's sake. After all, most change that could happen could be random. And a random change should not be expected to improve things. Quite the opposite. A lot of institutions that exist, a lot of ideas that we have, have evolved over time and weathered the criticisms that have been brought to bear against it and have survived. And so we end up with robust ideas, good ideas, good institutions. Any change to that, any random change is going to be for the worse. What we need is very carefully calibrated change that itself is subject to criticism, which can cause change in a particular direction that we call progress. So back to the book and David writes, static societies survive by effectively eliminating the type of evolution that is unique to memes, namely, Creative variation intended to meet the holder's individual preferences. In the absence of that, meme evolution resembles gene evolution more closely, and some of the grim conclusions of the naive analogies between them apply after all. Static societies do tend to settle issues by violence, and they do tend to sacrifice the welfare of individuals for the good of, that is to say, for the prevention of changes in society. I mentioned that people who rely on such analogies end up either advocating a static society or condoning violence and oppression. We now see that those two responses are essentially the same. Oppression is what it takes to keep a society static. Oppression of a given kind will not last long until the society is static. Since the sustained exponential growth of knowledge has unmistakable effects, we can deduce without historical research that every society on earth before the current Western civilization has either been static or has been destroyed within a few generations. The golden ages of Athens and Florence are examples of the latter, but there may have been others. This directly contradicts the widely held belief that individuals in primitive societies were happy in a way that has not been possible since, that they were unconstrained by social convention and other imperatives of civilization, and hence were able to achieve self-expression and fulfillment of their needs and desires. But primitive societies, including tribes of hunter-gatherers, must all have been static societies. Because if ever one ceased to be static, it would soon cease to be primitive, or else destroy itself by losing its distinctive knowledge. In the latter case, the growth of knowledge would still be inhibited by the raw violence which would be immediately which would immediately replace the static society's institution. For once violence is mediating changes, they will typically not be for the better. Since static societies cannot exist without effectively extinguishing the growth of knowledge, they cannot allow their members much opportunity to pursue happiness. Ironically, creating knowledge itself is itself a natural human need and desire. And static societies, however primitive, unnaturally suppress it. I'll say that again because I think I misspoke a little, but it's, it's worth repeating. Creating knowledge 
is itself a natural human need and desire. Creating knowledge is itself a natural human need and desire. So as I was saying right at the beginning of this, so much of what is regarded as unnatural, artificial, and therefore bad, is actually what we do naturally, creating knowledge. This whole natural, artificial, natural, unnatural distinction is a chimera of sorts. It's a silly way of trying to divide up any aspect of reality, unless you're a biologist, I suppose. Moving on, David writes, from the point of view of every individual in such a society, its creativity suppressing mechanisms are catastrophically harmful. Every static society must leave its members chronically balked in their attempts to achieve anything positive for themselves as people, or indeed anything at all, other than their meme-mandated behaviours. It can perpetuate itself only by suppressing its members' self-expression and breaking their spirits, and its memes are exquisitely adapted to doing this. And that's where we'll end. The next section is about dynamic societies. So just to summarise all of this, the reason a static society exists and persists over time, despite having creative people within it, is that the creativity has been disabled and or being used to ever more faithfully enact the status quo. And it does that because all the other kinds of creativity have been switched off, disabled, especially in young people. They're threatened with violence and violence is used. They're told that they're going to an eternal hell of suffering if they do not enact the rituals in the same way that has always been done. If they seek to improve something, then that would be regarded as unholy or unnatural. And so in this way, the society remains the same over time. It remains static. Even if the people would like things to improve, they have no means by which to improve because the ideas are switched off. And it's not to say that our society is perfectly dynamic and that we lack these kind of irrational memes. We're going to learn about that in the very next part that we talk about, about dynamic societies. And then after that, the real distinction the rational versus anti-rational memes. Um, but that's for next time. Until then, see you. As always, thank you to everyone who's supporting me. I have means and ways by which you can support my ongoing efforts with this via Patreon. Just look up TopCast Patreon or Brett Hall Patreon. Um, you can also PayPal me, which um, a couple of people have. And thank you very much to those people. Um, I, once more, I'm able to bring these out and buy little gadgets like this to hopefully improve the quality somewhat um, with people's contributions. So thank you very much for that. Um, until next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>